you have a Bible or if you are following along in our bulletin, you'll find that we are in Nehemiah 6 this week. We have a long passage, so please pay careful attention as we continue our work here in Nehemiah 6, 1 through 7, verse 3. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hekfirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. It was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehatabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah... And Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Nodiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, And his son, Jehonahan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid." Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, 
And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we gather this morning, we ask that you will speak to us. We recognize that it's only in your light that we see light, and we require the illumination of your spirit. So come and be amongst us, and will you speak for your servants listening? Amen. In his entertaining little book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis points out the tendency among Christians to do one of two things. That is, to make too much of the demon and the devils, or to make too little of them. Some get so fascinated with it, while others just simply ignore it. But Lewis points out that this raises one key issue, that when we make too much of it, or when we make too little of it, we actually miss the subtle nature of temptation and manipulation that assails every one of us. And so he wants us to be aware of the spiritual warfare that we live in the midst of and understand the subtle nature of how that works. And that's especially the case when we get serious about engaging with the work of God's kingdom. Lewis explains that we can expect that there's going to be some type of spiritual tension, spiritual warfare surrounding us. Now, during one of the more demanding seasons uh, for Melissa and I in pastoral ministry over the past 15 years, we found ourselves in the middle of a situation where there were two separate tensions. On the one hand, there was promise and blessing, a lot of good things going on. But then on the other hand, there were the deepest kinds of challenges we had ever experienced. And so I called my mentor, Tim Russell, to gain some outside perspective. It took some time to try to capture everything that was going on. It was hard to express the tensions between the blessings and the difficulties. And during that conversation, Tim paused and he said, Chuck, you know what this is right? And then he said this. He said, let me be clear with you. You need to be wise as to what's going on, or you're going to be no good to anyone. What is happening is spiritual warfare. And Tim's point to me was the same as what Lewis was saying, is that we need to understand how to recognize spiritual warfare, and we need to understand exactly what it is. If we can't, and if we can't call it for what it is, we'll be no good to anyone. And in Nehemiah 6, this is precisely what we see going on. As we see a spiritual war waging itself there, as Nehemiah gives himself to revitalizing the city of Jerusalem, to building the church of God according to his promises in the Old Testament. And as we read Nehemiah 6, what we can learn is exactly what spiritual warfare looks like and how it works. There's five things very quickly that we'll look at in order to, uh, to draw this out as to what spiritual warfare looks like. The first you'll find in verse 1 is that there is isolation. And that is that in spiritual warfare, one of the tactics that, that is taken is to create a certain type of loneliness that can then isolate and draw us away from, from fellowship and the people of God and to, uh, to completely cut us off. Now we learn in verse 1, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although the gates hadn't been set up. 
Now we've seen in chapter 2, as soon as Sanballat and Tobiah learned that Nehemiah was going to take an interest in the city of Jerusalem, that this displeased them. And then from chapter 2 into chapter 3, we saw that that alliance of Sanballat and Tobiah grew. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria to the north, Tobiah the governor of Ammon to the east. But then Geshem joined them, the governor of the Arabs to the south. And then as the story continued, we learned that the Ashdodites, who were to the west of Jerusalem, joined in. And so we gain a beautiful picture of Nehemiah being completely surrounded on north, on south, on east and west. He had enemies on every side. He was cut off from the world around him. And friends, this is what spiritual warfare looks like. It isolates. It creates a loneliness in which people ally themselves against the promises of God and the work of his kingdom, and they have many different mixed motivations for doing so. These men all had a vested interest in keeping Jerusalem free from having its own governor so they could continue to use it as some kind of puppet in their own power scheme. But this is how we experience it as well, is we get cut off, it's isolating, and extremely lonely. Now the second thing that we see in verse 2 is that there is deception. Following verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hekfirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Four times they actually invite Nehemiah to this meeting. And they were attempting to draw him out in order that they could jump him in some way. They wanted to do away with this troublemaker in Jerusalem, and so they spoke outright lies to him. They were taking the truth and twisting it. They were inviting him to something with hidden motivations. And whenever we see spiritual warfare taking place, there will be deceit and there will be lies. There will be hidden motivations. There will be agendas underneath what is said that we have to see through. But deceit is simply part of a broken and fallen world, and it's something that happens when we engage with the work of the kingdom, and we see this type of warfare breaking out. Now, the third piece of this you find in verses 6 and 7, that there's also accusations, in particular false accusations. After four invitations to Nehemiah to come out to the plain of Ono to meet, and Nehemiah denies each of those invitations, and he did so rather politely, but as you find in verses 6 and 7, Sanballat then sends an open letter to the city. Now, this was not proper etiquette and form for that time in the world. When political leaders wrote letters, they didn't write an open letter. But an open letter was written to the city, and what it explained is that Nehemiah was attempting to make himself king. Nehemiah had done no such thing. He accuses him also of setting up prophets who then announced that he was going to be king. And so there were false accusations. Nehemiah's motives were being impugned. He was being condemned. And Sanballat was doing it in a way to completely undermine him. But friends, when we see spiritual warfare breaking out among us, we can expect that there will be accusations. The Apostle John explains that the devil is a liar. He's been so from the beginning and that he is the father of lies. And the word Satan simply means the accuser. This is his role. This is what he does. And he uses various different agents to do so. And so false accusation will always be a part of spiritual warfare. And we see it with Nehemiah. Now, in following into, into verses 10 through 14, we see that there's also temptation. Temptation. 
in these verses, we see that Nehemiah is invited uh, because there was a plot against him. Shemaiah invites him into the temple there to find sanctuary. He says, they're going to kill you, so come into the temple and close the doors and be safe there. Find shelter and refuge. But Nehemiah discerned that there was something wrong with what he had been invited to do. Because you see, Nehemiah was a governor. He had been the cupbearer for the Persian king, but he didn't have one particular role. He was not a priest. And at this point in the law of God, only the priests were allowed into the inner sanctuaries of the temple. And so Nehemiah knew that he was being tempted to do something that he ought not do. He was being invited to take up the role of a priest that he had not been consecrated to do. Much like Saul of old, he was being invited to break the law of God and also to do so in the name of his own safety. And so Nehemiah discerned that this prophecy coming from this man named Shemaiah, this priest, that it was misguiding him and misdirecting him. He was being tempted to do something that would cause him to sin against God. And in the midst of spiritual warfare, this is what we can always expect. There will be temptation. There will be ways in which we can err. Even though we're being assailed from the outside, we have to deal with the inner pressures that go on and live in our own hearts. And Nehemiah had to deal with that while dealing with the pressures from outside. He had to deal with the pressures within as well. And then finally, the fifth thing that we find here is there's also external social pressure that takes place. If you look in verses 17 through 19, we find an account here of Tobiah. While Sanballat and Geshem had been active, we now learn Tobiah's part. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. We also learned some details following that, that Tobiah was married into some Jerusalem families. Also, his son-in-law was as well. And so Tobiah was tightly knit into the community, and he was using that influence and that social leverage against Nehemiah. He was writing letters to the nobles, and the nobles were listening to Tobiah. And so then social pressure was being applied to Nehemiah through Tobiah's consorts, the people he was using for his own agenda. And so there was a social pressure, a peer pressure being exerted on Nehemiah to, uh, to not act in the interest of the promises of God. Tobiah had his own agenda, and he wanted to exercise that through the nobles. And friends, this is just a very frank and honest look at the way that opposition takes place to the church in the middle of its work that it gives itself to. That when we align ourselves with the purpose and the plan of God, with what God has called us to do, to build his church throughout all the nations of the earth, we can expect that that the devil and the demons will not cooperate with that, that they're going to fight against that. And in various ways and in various seasons we'll find that the tension rises and we'll see things like deceit and accusations. And it doesn't mean that anything is wrong with the church itself, that this often happens in the church's greatest times of blessings where attack comes and it seeks to undermine and it seeks to work against the interest of God in the world. And the critical thing for us is to know how to identify it. That we not jump in with Sanballat and Tobiah. That we not undermine the very work that God is doing in the world because it's very tempting to do so. And so we must recognize spiritual warfare for what it is. 
And one of the helpful things about our passage is it also leads us in the way that we respond to this. When we see this kind of spiritual warfare unfolding in front of us, what exactly do we do? And there's two things that we learn here from Nehemiah. And the first is that we simply acknowledge our dependence. If you follow in verse 9, you see what Nehemiah does. Now, we noted that Nehemiah, at the beginning of the book, he devoted four months to prayer. And then ever since that point, Nehemiah punctuates his activities with very short, powerful prayers. And what does he say here in verse 9? But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah, in the midst of it, feels all the pressures of the warfare that's raging around him, everything that is collapsing in on him and cutting him off from every resource on the outside. And who does Nehemiah turn to? We've seen that Nehemiah does roll up his sleeves and he gets dirt under his fingernails and he works. But Nehemiah's first impulse is to turn to God. Strengthen my hands for the work in front of me. Strengthen my hands for this work that you've called me to. Strengthen my work for building on the promises that you have made. That's what Nehemiah does. And friends, this is one of the most important things for us as activistic type people who when we see a problem, we want to roll up our sleeves and get busy addressing it. But our first impulse has to be to turn to God. And honestly, Nehemiah's prayer life should be very encouraging to us. Just one sentence. (laughs) Strengthen my hands, God. Who can't pray in such simplicity? He calls out to God, asking him for help. But this is also not the prayer of a proud person, that when we struggle to ask people for help, and when we struggle to ask God for help, what we demonstrate is that we're self-reliant, we're independent. And this is something that's native to our, to our fallen humanity, is that we don't like to look to God in that simple type of weakness. That God, I have to have you in order to succeed here. That I can't succeed on my own resources. That I can't make it happen. I can't actualize this. And we have to get there. And in the middle of spiritual warfare, that becomes extremely necessary. Because the forces allied against us, the Axis powers that come in, they're far greater than you. They're not greater than God, but they're far greater than you. And so we must acknowledge that type of dependence. And the second thing that we learn in the midst of this about how to respond is that we also must entrust ourselves to God's wisdom. If you follow with me in verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Now, if you've been following Nehemiah across these six chapters, you'll note that this was a significant accomplishment. 52 days. The wall had all kinds of breaches. It was broken down, as we learned in chapter 2 from Nehemiah's survey. And then the enemies taunted that wall. They said if a fox ran up on it, it would fall down. They were taunting him. They were mocking his efforts. And yet, in 52 days, it was rebuilt And then the enemy's pride was actually turned into what? Into shame. And they knew that God was at work helping Nehemiah. There was no other way for this to happen. That from absolute rubble and weakness. 
in which Nehemiah is a man who lived under threat and lived with all kinds of problems around him, that he was cut off, that he had so many enemies that he couldn't even number them. And there were so many problems that even the nobles there in Jerusalem were undermining him. And yet he was successful. That in the midst of all that weakness, God made him strong. And God accomplished his purposes. And friends, this is the pattern of how God works in our world. It's not particularly pleasant, but it's the story of Joseph, is it not? Joseph rose to great preeminence, but he came to that preeminence through crisis. He found success not by avoiding crisis, but going through it, being thrown into jail, maligned and misunderstood, being falsely accused by his brothers. And this is the path ultimately of our Lord Jesus, that he finds the crown through the path of suffering. That what people intended for evil against Jesus, God actually used for good. And this is the logic of the gospel. It's the logic of the kingdom of God. And it's what we must understand about spiritual warfare. That when we're engaged with the work of the kingdom of God, everything is not just one success after another. And we don't judge a church's health or a church's life because everything is just going smoothly. Actually, there's going to be tremendous problems But in the middle of those tremendous problems and tensions, there will be the blessing of God on that work. And for those who know how to see and know how to understand, they'll be able to appreciate that. And that's what happens in Jerusalem, is that God uses all the weaknesses of it. And a people who did turn and look to him, and he blesses their work. In 52 days, they saw great success. And so the work of the kingdom doesn't avert crisis. It doesn't avert warfare. It goes through it. Because this is the way, this is the life, this is the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we acknowledge dependence and we entrust ourselves to God's wisdom. The way that he works strength through weakness. This is the way of engagement in spiritual warfare because it's real. C.S. Lewis was right. We can make too much of it or we can make too little of it. But be wise Know how to read the times around you and then know how to engage those times. Let's pray and let's ask God for help. Father, we acknowledge that there are principalities and powers that we don't see, that we don't fully understand. We know that our Lord Jesus has disarmed them by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead and that he calls us into the great battle around us, the battle that you have promised to win to restore all things and renew the creation. And God, as we engage in that, as we do the work of your commission and building your church, we ask that you would give us grace, that we would know what it is to be weak, to cry out to you for strength, and to entrust ourselves to your wisdom. Help us to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.